Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to What Happens Next Week 4. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. So when a meeting or part thereof is held under the Chatham House rules, participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor that of any other participant may be revealed. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more about what they have to say without putting the speaker at risk. Today, we have a fabulous group of speakers who will speak about the pandemic from a wide range of perspectives. The format of the call will be the same as the previous three weeks. Each speaker will be given six minutes to talk. At the five-minute point, I may throw in a question or two, and then we're off to the next speaker. I think the format allows for a focused conversation that is incredibly interesting. After all the speakers have spoken, there will be a general question and answer where the speakers and I will have a chance to have an open discussion. Here we go. Our first participant will be Josh Harris. Josh is a co-founder of Apollo, and he is one of the owners of the Philadelphia 76ers. Josh, fire away. Okay, well, thanks, Larry, and um, welcome. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so Larry asked me to speak about the economy, private equity, the markets, Apollo, and sports in six minutes. I'll do my best. Um, getting into the economy, I mean, I, like, obviously, you've listened to a lot of economists, I guess, you know, my perspective here is that the the massive stimulus that has occurred, while you know historic and large, um, isn't isn't really going to la- isn't really going to propel the economy forward. That it's just not enough. If you think about a twenty trillion dollar economy with a two trillion dollar stimulus package, the economy's down thirty percent in Q two, twenty five to thirty percent in Q two, and you know global GDP is down about five which is $5 trillion, and this fiscal stimulus isn't going to get very far, and so we need to get people back to work. And obviously that's going to be, uh, you know, certainly uh, there's no one out there who thinks that a vaccine is available in the next 12 months, and that's going to be a cure. There may be treatments available, so really that's going to be dependent on, you know, massive testing. Uh, just because the economy, the government may try is going to try to get people back to work. My guess is sometime before July fourth, and after May first. But you know how you do that uh, when people are still continue to feel at risk. It's going to be complicated, and the it's going to be require massive and quick testing, and that's not really visible as to how that's going to be accomplished right now. And so, uh, as I turn to the markets. Uh, when you see the stock market continuing to plow forward in the credit markets, and, you know, we all read about the Fed, you know, $2.3 trillion monetary response, and it's, again, historic and appropriate, but it really isn't, you know, that, that it's driven technicals way ahead of fundamentals, and so we just don't see, um, we, don't, we think the markets are, are not really truly fathoming um, the depth and the severity of the economic damage that's occurring and how hard it's going to be to get people back to work. And so um, we were quite active early and, you know, sort of way less active now in terms of just watching the markets trade based on um, the latest uh, virus statistics and, you know, the latest fiscal stimulus and the latest monetary stimulus. We just don't think the fundamentals really are there. Um, in terms of so so we're, you know I think it's just something to be cautious of and truthfully the Fed stuff which we've been you know pretty involved with like it, it's definitely helping the markets as a whole but relative to um, you know smaller companies you know non investment grade companies 
middle market companies, uh, you know, it's just not, um, it doesn't feel to us, to, it's going to be much harder to get to those companies and to those companies. You know, uh, you know the market's buoying, you know, it takes everything up, but uh, those companies, it's going to be harder to reach. In terms of private equity, um, I'd say that um, we invested earlier and now we we're, we're more muted, as I said. The alternative space is holding together relatively nicely. Um, we expect marks industry-wide for the big public companies to be down, similar to the S&P, uh, uh, as of 331. We think the second quarter will be worse. LPs are still funding capital calls. Uh, money for branded players is still being raised, and so the the, the alternative space seems to be uh, in reasonable shape. Uh, I think certainly as you know, the second quarter marks and the third quarter marks roll into the alternative space, it's going to be it could you know put a little bit of a damper on that. And then, lastly, hitting sports before my five minutes are up. Um, the leagues and everyone is focused on trying to figure out whether it'll be feasible to play this season, and if so, what the, that will look like. Um, people think it would be a big lift to the country if the leagues could play some part of the season. Defit decisions are definitely being deferred through May to see what will happen in the country. And, and obviously, for a lot of different reasons, the leagues need to be very sensitive. People are really suffering, and so... The leagues do go back. Uh, you know, you have to be very appropriate as to how you do that. Having said all that, so so there's a lot of incentive and a lot of uh, desire to actually play. Having said all that, um, it's quite complicated to play even without fans. Um, the health and the safety of the players and the coaches and everyone else is paramount. And you know, the complexity. The, there's a large entourage around the players. You know, that has to travel with the players. And so how you actually do it is quite complicated. And, and so right now it's unclear, you know, whether it's going to happen or not. A lot will depend on, like, the next few months uh, and, wh and what, what occurs. So um, in any case, and then the last thing I'd say about sports is, you know, one thing that, you know, we've seen is, you know, certainly with uh, our players and our organization and with Ben Simmons and John Beatus, you know, the, the massive media footprints and notoriety of the players have, and of these teams have allowed uh, all of us to give back to the community in a tremendously effective way, you know, where people are, you know, jumping on board. And, you know, you know Ben did the Philly Pledge. You all gave a large gift to Penn. Um, and so, um, you know, both as an organization and individually from our players, you know, we're, 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 we're using this time to help, you know, help people that are really sick or medical workers that are heroes and putting themselves at risk. So just stop there, Larry. I don't know yeah. if I... Over, Perfect. Over well, you're doing great. We have one more minute. Um, you mentioned alternative uh, alternative space. Are you hearing really anything interesting from your operating businesses directly about how they're going to interact with their consumers or anything else like that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what you're reading, which is that, like, I mean, obviously, any, you know, restaurants, um, things that are, um, you know, crowd-based, um, you know, are completely dark, you know. And so I'd say, uh, and certainly, um, you know, uh, you know, certainly, help, you, know, you know, big hospital companies, you know, elective surgeries are gone. Um, you know, energy is... Uninvestable. 
Um, but I'd say for us, um, you know, we have a, you know, a small number of, so, so, so the economy at large being down is, you know, certainly going to affect levered companies. Um, you know, and you're seeing, you know, kind of people, um, you know, some percentage, I think, you know, call it a less than a quarter, but, you know, as of April 1st, you know, not everyone's paying their leases anymore, um, all of the stuff that you would expect. So, um, you know, there's definitely, you know, the impact is industry by industry and company by company, and I've given you some of, some of the flavor. Um, yeah. And um, but you know by and large, um, you know it's you know the private equity companies uh, had a lot of liquidity. Um, the debt structures of these companies have been very well managed to provide for flexibility. And you know they're definitely you know the unfortunately actions are needing to be taken to help these companies survive. Josh, thank you, Josh. Um, our next speaker is Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan comes to us from NYU, where he's professor professor of ethical leadership. Fire away, John. Thanks so much, Larry. Uh, so I'm a social psychologist, and I study positive psychology and moral psychology. Uh, I'm going to talk about two powerful psychological concepts that are crucial for flourishing during and after this crisis, and those are reappraisal and anti-fragility. To illustrate these principles, I'm going to start by asserting that the coronavirus may be the best thing to happen to humanity in the 21st century. And to illustrate that claim, I'm going to tell you or remind you of the famous Chinese folktale about the farmer whose favorite stallion ran away. When the neighbors heard the news, they came to comfort him. But he said, is it bad luck? It's too soon to know. A week later, the stallion returned, bringing with him a very valuable mare. The neighbors came to congratulate him on his good fortune, but he said, is it good luck? It's too soon to know. A few weeks later, while the son was riding the new mare, the horse slipped, fell, and broke his son's leg so that he would always walk with a limp. And once again, the neighbors came, the farmer says, it's too soon to tell. And it goes on and on like this. A year later, a war breaks out, everyone's drafted except for the son because he has a limp, etc. So it's a famous Chinese folktale. Let's apply it now to our situation with the COVID crisis. If you look at lists of the cataclysms that could wipe out humanity or that could kill hundreds of millions of people, you usually find these two. A respiratory virus with a high death rate, like 10% or more, and bioterrorism, a deliberately engineered superbug, either from a government or from a lone madman, which will become possible in the 2030s. Both of those cataclysms are now much less likely to happen or to be devastating because of all that we're learning from our mistakes, our many mistakes in the current epidemics. In other words, our global antiviral systems are going to emerge so much stronger than had this not happened to us. So COVID looks like a disaster now, but when you step back and look at the big picture, it's too soon to tell. So if you look at it this way, I hope you can see the psychological power of these two principles of reappraisal, looking at things differently, and of anti-fragility. I'm gonna dig a little bit deeper on reappraisal. Uh, my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, cataloged 10 of the most important psychological insights from ancient wisdom, and here's the most powerful of all. There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. That's Shakespeare. Or, life itself is but what we deem it. That's Marcus Aurelius. Our life is the creation of our minds. That's Buddha. This insight is also the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. 
because we don't see the world as it is. We see it through a set of mental filters, which often distort reality. But we can learn to use more accurate filters. This crisis is giving us what may be the biggest opportunity in our lifetimes to reappraise, reframe, and lower our expectations. When we grow accustomed to a level of comfort or success or safety, we take things for granted. We fail to appreciate what we have. We feel entitled and we lose all sense of gratitude. This crisis gives us all a golden opportunity to press a moral reset button, to realize how much our happiness and success depend on other people, on thousands or millions of other people. This crisis invites us all to throw off our sense of entitlement, to cultivate a new appreciation for the beauty of this world and the goodness of the people we share it with. I recommend two practices to help you press that button. One, this is a really good time to start keeping a gratitude journal. It's so easy to notice the things we took for granted now. I particularly recommend buying the five-minute journal. You can just Google that. It's a really good system for a daily practice. A second practice is to start reading the Stoics. If you have not read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, uh, I highly recommend it to you, especially the Gregory Hayes translation. Now onto the second concept, anti-fragility. It's a wonderful concept. Think about it this way. A wine glass is fragile, so we would never give it to toddlers to play with because they'll drop it. We therefore give them plastic, plastic cups, because a sippy cup is resilient. If the kid drops it, it doesn't break, but it doesn't get better. Nassim Taleb, the guy who wrote The Black Swan, was reflecting on properties of systems that get stronger when they are shocked or challenged, when they have setbacks. Um, and he saw that there was no word for it in the English language. He needed something much more than resilience. So he made up the word anti-fragile. And the best example of an anti-fragile system anywhere is the immune system, which we're all learning so much about. Um, I mean, think about it. You've probably heard recently about viral dose. So if you just inhale a tiny bit of virus, maybe just a couple of droplets, it triggers an antibody reaction. Your body gets going. It prepares, it, it, it responds to this threat and it's able to take care of it. Uh, people who get a low dose generally don't have bad symptoms, but if you take in a very high dose or if your immune system is compromised, well, then the virus gets ahead and your immune system isn't strong enough to keep it down and you can get a very serious or possibly fatal uh, disease. Um, so we're all coming to understand now um, that the, the immune system is an open system and if you protect, think about it with children, if you protect kids from dirt and germs, you're not helping them. They're, they have to be exposed to dirt and germs to help the immune system grow strong. It turns out that our whole psyche is anti-fragile. Kids need a lot of adversity and frustration in order to grow strong and independent. And if we protect them from adversity and frustration, they grow weak. This appears to be what we've done to Gen Z. Many of us have children born after 1996, Gen Z. Their rates of depression and anxiety began to skyrocket around 2012. They were the most depressed, anxious, and fragile generation ever documented. This crisis could be the best thing that happens to them. We can't overschedule them. We can't guide them from activity to activity. They need to do a lot more things independently now. So if you have children under 18, let them take on more challenges. Give them more independence. Visit letgrow.org for more ideas. I think we're going to see the same thing in many companies. Okay. All right. Let me just close by saying, if we can get these two principles working for us, I think it might really turn out that the coronavirus is the best thing to happen to humanity in the 21st century. Great. Thank you so much.
Um, our next speaker is John Size. John Size come to, comes to us from Vanderbilt, where he's a professor of political science. Go ahead, John. Thanks, Larry. I'm going to talk about the politics of the pandemic. And I want to do that through thinking about how the coronavirus interacts with, with aspects of our politics that are, that are, that are very long-standing, chronic features of them. Um, and then in some sense, I think that the politics are shaping our response to the pandemic as much or, or more than the pandemic is actually shaping our politics. Uh, so three things that I think are chronic features of politics that matter. One is that the, the political system provides very few incentives and voters provide very few incentives for politicians to engage in long-term planning. Um, let me recommend to you a 2009 article um, by the political scientists Andrew Healy and Neil Malhotra, which is called Myopic Voters and Natural Disaster Policy. What they found in that piece was that voters do not reward politicians for spending to prevent disasters. Every dollar that an incumbent administration spent on disaster prevention in a particular county had no relationship with how well that incumbent did in the subsequent election. Instead, what voters do is they reward, reward politicians for disaster relief spending. So other things equal, what the authors found is that if you shifted from spending like a dollar per person in disaster relief in a county to $10 per person, you would expect the incumbent to gain about seven or eight tenths of a point of vote share in the next election. So in some sense, the myopia of voters, which is to say our nearsightedness as opposed to our farsightedness, gives politicians very, very little incentives to plan for the longer term or to plan for relatively rare but costly events like pandemics. Now, this myopia is going to affect all kinds of policy areas. You can see it in fiscal policy. You can see it in climate change. You can see it in public pension programs. What we're discovering now is that pandemics are just yet one more example of this. And the fact that we keep repeating this mistake, right, over and over again just testifies to the fact that the incentives don't seem to be changing. The second thing is the American system of federalism and the challenge that we face in coordinating action to a policy or to a coordinating policy in response to a pandemic. So we subdivide power in this country, obviously, between the national government and state and local governments. But that can produce some useful experimentation and policy, but it can also produce a real challenge uh, when, when states are being asked to coordinate on a, a large national problem. So we're reading news stories about states frantically competing with each other for basic medical supplies. They're overpaying for their supplies. They don't know when or where the federal government is going to swoop in and commandeer supplies. Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, Republican, said, you've got 50 states and the federal government all chasing the same companies. It's crazy. So watching this unfold, I was reminded of what it probably felt like 250 years ago to live under the Articles of Confederation. And it was this kind of cutthroat competition among states which you know, provoked the framers to draft a new constitution. And it's one reason why the federal government's ability to deal with collective action problems has grown over the nation's history, oftentimes in ways that the states themselves have welcomed. The additional challenge in this case is that every state's policy with regard to the virus creates potential externalities for other states. So if my state has weaker social distancing policies and more infections, nothing can guarantee that infectious people won't cross state boundaries and affect other states. None of this appears to be changing soon. Reporting from within inside the Trump administration suggests that they have made a deliberate political calculation to put the onus on the governors rather than try to coordinate policy from the federal government side. And so without that kind of concerted leadership, we're going to continue to see this kind of chaos and inefficiency. The third thing is the political polarization that you all have observed in American politics that affects both how office holders and citizens respond to the pandemic. Um, 
Our political attitudes as citizens depend a lot on what we're told by political leaders that we trust. And there have been, of course, very mixed messages coming from Republican and Democratic leaders. Uh, Republican leaders in particular, especially the president, have had uh, equivocated on the seriousness of the virus and the appropriate measures that citizens should take. Uh, a study by political scientists at the University of Washington found that you could predict fairly well when states adopt social distancing policies based on whether the state is run by a Republican or Democratic governor and how many Trump voters there are in the state. And states with Republican governors and more Trump voters took longer to implement social distancing policies. Similarly, among citizens, many surveys show that Republicans are less concerned than Democrats about the coronavirus. Data from GPS signals from cell phones shows less evidence of social distancing in Republican versus Democratic counties. All of those relationships, of course, control for other potential factors. Nothing we're seeing now suggests this is going to stop. The president and some Republican office holders are contemplating a push to weaken social distancing provisions. They can't do that single-handedly, obviously. It's up to the governors and mayors. But if the president or if other Republican leaders or Fox News personalities are pushing to sort of reopen the country, quote-unquote, that makes it harder for Republican governors and other Republican office holders to take a tougher stand. So now we're going to interact this with federalism. And you have an even bigger incentive for this heterogeneous and piecemeal set of politics that we have and are likely to continue to have across the country. Reflecting on this reminded me of a famous article from 1959 by the political scientist and economist Charles Lindblom. And in the article, he calls policymaking the science of muddling through. I'm not sure whether to call anything about our response to COVID scientific, but I'm sure that we will call it muddling through. John, thank you so much. Um, our next speaker is Howard Kunrother. He is a professor of risk management at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Go ahead, Howard. Well, thank you very much, Larry. Uh, what I'm going to do is build on some of the points that John Size just made uh, with respect to asking the general question, why does the general public and national leaders not pay attention to pandemics before it is too late? And there'll be three areas that I'll want to cover in, in my comments. First is the failure to understand exponential growth. Then there's a whole issue of risk perception and then cognitive biases and heuristics that people utilize. With respect to the failure to uh, understand economic growth, there were experiments done by William Wagonar in 1975, and I owe this to Paul Slovic, who knows this better than I do, and the two of us actually wrote a piece in Politico on this, and we basically indicated that, we, uh, that people are, um, uh, do not really focus on these, these risks, and as a result, uh, really misinterpret essentially what's going to happen with respect to something like the coronavirus. Uh, there was a beautiful article that, you could, uh, that I recommend that people look at by Megan McCardle on this, where she actually talked about a lily pond where you would actually see how quickly it would be filled if it doubled the number of leaves that would be put in there each day. And after, 40 day, after 40 day, 47 days, assume it was totally half filled, you know that on the 48th day it will be fully filled. But on the 40th day, only 0.4% of the pond would be filled, less than 1%. And I think it's on that basis that people were thinking of the coronavirus in January and February when there were very few uh, people who had been contracted with the illness and only one person actually died by February 24th. The second point is on risk perception, and this is an area, again, that Paul Slovak has done a great deal of work in, and 
the big issue here, I think, is that the features of risk perception that get people to pay attention were never obvious in the first couple of months. Dread. No one was dreading the disease. No one was thinking about fatal consequences if people died. And certainly no one was thinking of the catastrophic potential uh, in terms of how many people would die. So these, uh, these features were certainly not present uh, in these first two months. Third are the biases in heuristics that uh, a, number, a number of people have done work on and has been central to a lot of the work at our risk center. First is myopia that we actually heard from John about and the focus on short-term horizons, the idea that politicians don't pay attention, we don't pay attention to that either. And as a result, there's a general feeling that we're not really going to pay attention to these, uh, the coronavirus until actually there's enough that's happening. We focus really on the, uh, the short run rather than the long term. We also forget lessons of the past. We don't have, no one really thinks about the 1918 uh, epi- uh, pandemic that occurred because we never really read, even read about it, let alone hear about it. Now everyone is talking about what might have happened, but it took this pandemic to bring that to attention. Optimism. The fact is that we actually estimate the likelihood based upon our current data and feel that no one is going to be affected by the infected. Of course, that was in January and February. We feel very differently now. And the say, and inertia. Why should we change our behavior? And that that operated even in at the end of February. Everyone going to Mardi Gras and students going to spring break and all of us doing things. I'm not immune to this myself, so I'm not saying that uh, I behave very differently during that period of time. Uh, we have there's simplification in the sense that we actually uh, focus on one of the dimensions of the risk. Before, the corona, before March, we were focusing primarily on the low likelihood of it happening. Uh, afterwards, we focused entirely, in, and we should be focusing on the consequences now when we're finally paying attention. And finally, herding behavior is a really critical area. We, fen- we focus on what our friends and neighbors are doing, uh, but they don't know a lot more than we do. And in fact, it was a reason for everyone congregating in Mardi Gras as just one example of going on spring break. So these are some of the biases that play a role with respect to dealing with it. The challenge I think we face right now is how can we deal with this in a way that would be, uh, enable us to avoid this in the future? Certainly when we may avoid the pandemic in future because of what happened. Uh, our interest is also on climate change and how that may play a role, and I think the same things happen there, with, particularly with exponential growth. And I think that there are a couple of things that I think could be really taken from what we have learned from the pandemic. First, we have to listen to the scientists early in the game, and that has not happened certainly in our country. And as a result of that, we've, had, we've really ignored this until very recently. And they, they were obviously looking at a new uh, hazard, a new disaster, but at the same time, they were actually focusing in terms of sort of how could we deal with this, and there was enough data at the end of January to deal with it. Secondly, point to countries that have done a really good job, like South Korea, where they really have done the testing that was necessary and, and did the contact tracing and quarantine people. And I think this is extremely important. And then finally, try to figure out ways to impose these strict regulations and requirements at a national level by pointing to what other countries have done and their success as a result of that. I'll end on that note, uh, Larry, and look forward to uh, the discussion. Perfect. Our next speaker is Phil Tetlock. Phil Tetlock is a professor of psychology and management at Penn. Uh, please go ahead, Phil. Phil, I can't hear you. 
I'm going to start with my obligatory disclaimer. Uh, I'm not an epidemiologist or infectious disease specialist. I'm not even a forecaster. Uh, I study human judgment under uncertainty, and forecasters happen to be one of my favorite research subject populations. And I've been studying them for about 30 years. Uh, some say I'm picking on them. Uh, much of the work uh, has been done with the support of the U.S. intelligence community. They've sponsored several forecasting tournaments, including some epidemiological ones, including one on COVID-19 ongoing. So here's what I can say about COVID-19 in light of the ongoing work. Uh, first, it is indeed gradually becoming clear who the good forecasters are and how they're pulling it off. And the answer is close to who the good forecasters typically are. They're, they tend to be self-critical Bayesian belief updaters. Uh, it's also becoming pretty clear who the bad forecasters are and how they're managing to be so wrong. And here again, it's pretty much the usual formula. Um, you don't want to be an opinionated twit who blurs your judgments of facts and probabilities with your judgments of values and utilities. You want to keep them separate as part of good mental hygiene. Uh, so uh, first to the good forecasters. Um, in my view, the heroes are the microbiologists who grounded their initial estimates of risk in the historical base rates of pandemics and then applied the best cause-effect knowledge about zoonotic uh, diseases. And they got a real head start. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from a scientific journal in 2007. Uh, One of their their key lines is, the presence of a large reservoir of SARS uh, uh, coronavirus-like viruses among horseshoe bats in central China, together with the culture of uh, eating exotic mammals, is a time bomb. the probabilities they were putting on, the, on, on, on a pandemic breaking out, you know, were somewhere between hmm, maybe 1% and 7, 7 or 8%, but cumulatively year over year, that, that adds up fast. Um, the second tranche of forecasting heroes are to be found, I think, in the intelligence community, such as the CIA medical intelligence briefers in November 19, who talked to uh, uh, the president and Congress about a new virus wreaking havoc in, in Wuhan. Uh, this was based on a very nitty-gritty analysis of news and flows of people and trade. Um, President Trump was not moved to action, uh, but some members of Congress did start selling stock. Uh, now, I, I dwell on this because you know the COVID pandemic bears the marks of what's sometimes called a predictable surprise. The time bomb was a chronic low-probability event. Imagine rolling multiple dice year after year. The chances of disaster varying somewhere between 5% and some point zero zero zero. And the years pass with numerous outbreaks, minor outbreaks, um, and, but they also pass with numerous false positive forecasts of apocalypses. And it, it proves difficult under these conditions to hold policymakers' attention in a, in a high news, uh, high noise news environment. Uh, it's also difficult for the reasons that Howard Kuhnrather noted uh, having to do with, with, with cognitive heuristics. Briefly, the bad forecasters, as I believe they're revealing themselves to be in the COVID-19 forecasting tournaments, uh, we're predicting fatalities across several countries. Uh, there's an interesting linkage, a logical and psychological linkage between historical counterfactuals and conditional forecasts. You know, you've got a historical counterfactual. If we locked down 70 days earlier, uh, deaths would be X percent lower. The conditional forecast, if we continue the lockdown 70 days longer, the deaths will be X percent lower. Uh, so we're testing the following idea. Uh, people who tend to make super opinionated judgments of historical counterfactuals will tend to be bad forecasters. So if you answer within milliseconds uh, that um, if Hillary Clinton were president rather than Trump uh, in in November, December 2019, the casualty toll would be vastly lower. Um, It doesn't mean you're wrong, 
but it does mean that people who make very quick snap judgments in response to ideologically uh, polarizing counterfactuals are bad bets to be good forecasters. Or another one on the other side of the Pacific Ocean, if, if China had had a press as free as Taiwan's in November, December 2019, then the uh, pandemic would not have spread as far as it did in China. All of this is similar to some work we've done earlier on the, uh, the cognitive reflection test, which is a, basically a measure of cognitive impulsivity. It correlates moderately with IQ as well. A bat costs a dollar more than a ball. How much does the ball cost? If you answer 10 cents, you're less likely to be a good forecaster because you gave the cognitively impulsive answer. So the short of, long and short of this is that COVID-19 forecasting looks a lot like forecasting in most of the geopolitical economic arenas we've studied over the last few decades. Uh, the correlates of better and worse judgment seem to be, seem to be holding up. If I have the time, I'll tell you there's one big difference. Phil, you're, you're out. Um, okay. All right. I'll come back to you during the Q&A. Um, our next speaker is Steve Phillip. He is the current mayor of Jersey City. Steve, tell us what's going on. All right. Well, let me, let me start. That was, that was good, Larry. I had to cut it off. But, um, so I, uh, Larry asked me to give you a little perspective of what we see on the ground of somebody who deals with this um, right now, day in and day out. We have about 2,500 active cases. We're the largest city in New Jersey. We're about a mile and a half from New York. Um, we have a little bit of more than 100 fatalities. And he asked me to talk a little bit about um, what we're seeing with enforcement with regards to shelter in place, how that's working, what our numbers look like, and then a little bit about what our municipal budget looks like longer term. So I'll start with kind of the challenges around uh, the shelter in place. And our challenges are the same as every other city. It's probably things that you won't read in the paper because we're making choices around how to police this stuff. Uh, we have a police department of about 950 police officers. Last week, we had close to 350 of them that were either uh, home uh, COVID positive or that they were quarantined because they worked with somebody who was COVID positive. And that's led us to have a really difficult time in the shelter in place. And as a result, we've seen a increase in crime. Um, people ask us all the time why we're not more aggressive and we've limited choices is the reality. We're not going to put somebody in jail. That's tremendously counterproductive. And generally, a poorer population um, has, uh, is less inclined to be responsive to summonses or fees or layering them up with uh, tickets isn't necessarily productive either. And then you got to realize that every time we have a close contact with somebody on the corner, um, there's a risk of that we've seen where they identify themselves as somebody who's COVID positive, And that automatically triggers us losing several police officers that go into self-quarantine. So the depletion of our police department has led to an increase in crime. And people don't realize necessarily how difficult it is for municipalities to police uh, this shelter in place. We really have limited means to kind of put that in, in, into effect. And then regarding our municipal budget, we have a budget normally of about $600 million. We're expecting uh, about a $70 million gap because of uh, the COVID situation. Why? We have no taxes in regards to hotel tax. We have our payroll tax is totally shot. We don't know what the collectibles are going to be or receivables for our property taxes. That's in a month that we'll see that. And then we lose about a million to 1.5 per week with regards to tickets, construction fees, um, and basic permits that the city would be issuing. So we're going to have a serious problem come uh, August, September, and uh, we're going to need help at the state or federal level which right now doesn't give any direct help to cities smaller than 500,000. We're 300,000, so we need to have help from the state, which every time you have a different layer of government getting involved, it becomes increasingly difficult to get that support. So that's kind of the big picture. I don't know, Larry, if you have any questions or we could cover it at the end. 
Um, I guess one thing I want to ask is, you know, Jersey City is a very, it's considered one of the most diverse cities in the world. Uh, yep. Wikipedia gave you that. How yep. would you describe um, the different behaviors within your residential communities? Yeah, yeah. So it's been really hard to do outreach in some of the, um, you know, larger immigrant communities. For example, the Coptic Egyptian community, the Filipino community. We have very, very large, substantial communities there. It's been hard to do outreach. And then we're seeing the cases isn't necessarily a uh, um, racial disparity, as some people read. It's more about economics and poverty. So, you know, in the pockets of the city where you see larger poverty, you see a big increase in COVID positives and a big increase in fatalities. Not only a big increase in fatalities that you read, we probably have a 20 to 30 percent increase in what the police would classify as kind of just DOA, that we get a call overnight, somebody's dead in their house, and there's no suspicious reasons to see that other than that their neighbor said uh, they indicated that they were feeling poorly for the last couple of days. So those aren't counted in COVID positive cases that you read anywhere, but every police department has a big increase in that. And that ties directly into a lot of the immigrant communities that are harder to reach and the poorer communities, of course. And how are we, um, I know there's different people take this uh, shelter in place differently. How, how can we, get moral suasion better in place in some communities that aren't, rep- um, aren't doing it. And then on the other side of that, when we really um, create this sort of fear, how are we going to unwind that public fear where we want this economy to be opened up again? I mean, we have the conversation around opening up the economy every day and um, on the local level, and there is nobody that's had a good plan that uh, we could implement, and that's at the state level or at the local level. And with regards to uh, persuading some of the more challenging communities, we're trying our best to use conduits, whether it's religious leaders or community leaders, but those have its challenges as well, because the people that are generally on the corner, there are people that um, you know have, have harder upbringings. If they're not scared of uh, the typical type of violence that their life is accustomed to, they're certainly not scared of COVID or corona. So um, it's a big challenge for us, and, and it's the same problem that you're going to see in every major city across the country. And they're probably not talking about it because they direct their police department to make choices because everybody has such a depleted police department and first responders. Steve, thank you so much. No problem, um, thanks. Uh, Victor Chaw is our next speaker. Victor, are you on the line? Um, Victor coming to us from Georgetown, where he's professor of government at the School of Foreign Service. Victor, can you hear me? All right, sounds like I have some technical difficulties with Victor. I'll come back to him. Uh, Simon Johnson will be our next speaker. Um, uh, Victor, is that you? Or that's Simon? It's Simon. Oh, hey, Simon. Simon, why don't you go ahead? Uh, Simon is a professor of economics uh, at MIT. Hey, Larry, it's Victor. Okay, Victor. Sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Yes, sorry about that. I got cut off. I'm back on. I'm, okay, supposed, to speak on, I'm supposed to speak on South Korea. Thanks, Larry. So let me just begin. My bottom line is that if the United States wants to reopen the economy, it needs to adopt some form of FNAP-based social tagging and social distancing, even temporarily if it infringes on privacy that has been shown to work in Korea. Um, so if we look at Korea's case, their response to the novel coronavirus is sort of emerging as a model for flattening the curve and reducing the rate of infection among the population. From the outset of the crisis to today, South Korea has just over 10,000 cases with a slowing rate of infection around the first week of March. Well, as we all know, the United States is now 
uh, over half a million. And they discovered their first cases on pretty much within 24 hours of each other. Per capita, South Korea has tested more citizens um, than the United States two to three times. And on this point, the total number of tests really doesn't matter. The real metric is whether you or I can get a test if we want one. Um, and we can't in the United States unless we're an NBA basketball player or a, um, a chief executive of an oil company. In Korea, if you want a test, not only can you get one, but there's a phone app that will take you to the closest place. So how did South Korea flatten the curve? Um, just a few quick observations. The first thing was that they, they moved very early. Um, from the first detected case of a traveler from Wuhan, China on January 20th, it took less than a week for South Korean health, health officials to call a meeting with 20 medical companies to start moving forward with a response, including producing test kits and promising rapid regulatory approval. Um, they, South Korea declared a national emergency on February 23rd, about a month after the first case. It would take the United States three more weeks before the Trump administration declared a national emergency. South Korea moved quickly, placed a premium on speed. Nine days after the first case, it established a national call center for the public to, dis <coughs> to disseminate information. Ten days after the first case, it started supplying masks to vulnerable workplaces. Two weeks after the first case, uh, test kits started rolling off the production line, capable of producing results in six hours. And 22 days after the first case, a self-diagnosis mobile app became available to the South Korean public, allowing users to find clinics for testing. And then third, the government led from the front and not from behind. National health authorities brought together the public and private sectors to push uh, the, uh, the latter group to produce kits quickly and the former group to grant regulatory approval very quickly. Uh, they did things, the government organized things like the DS system, a designated system of facilities for COVID-only facilities and non-COVID health facilities so that um, uh, you wouldn't get inc incidental spread from someone with a broken arm walking into a facility where there were COVID patients. It also addressed the mask shortage. Um, <clears throat> when people started hoarding and price gouging on masks, the government bought 80% of national production and then held prices constant and created a distribution system at pharmacies, post offices, and, and agricultural cooperatives where basically if your birth, the, the last digit of your birth year was zero or five, you could buy masks on Friday so on and so forth, and they held the price at about $1.27 a mask. And of course, the government is now leading in different sorts of aid packages and efforts to help with the um, post-peak uh, post -peak recovery. So again, my final point is if the United States, and if there's talk about reopening after the peak, they need to consider some sort of phone-based social tagging method that we've seen used in Korea. Absent a vaccine, which will take over 18 months, or universal testing, which the president has already said we're not going to do, I don't really see any other way to facilitate effective social distancing without using such technology, even if it invades privacy rights. Now, some may say, you know, Korea can do this, or countries in Asia can do this, but because they're not a democracy. But I just want to remind everybody, Korea is one of the most vibrant democracies in the world. Um, they even had mass demonstrations several years ago to impeach, successfully impeach, throw a president out of office. So it's about as vibrant a democracy as you can imagine, um, and, it's, and, and we can learn from these examples. That's it for me, Larry. Perfect, Victor. Thank you so much.
Yep. Um, our next speaker is Simon Johnson. As I mentioned before, he is a professor of economics at MIT. Fire away, Simon. Uh, thanks very much, Larry. So uh, I think I have a pretty uh, positive and optimistic message for everyone today, although I would like to emphasize that I believe there are some dark days and even some very dark days uh, ahead. I, I want to give you a readout on the technology development process at MIT, uh, re directly related to COVID-19. And there's three uh, elements here that I think are worth your attention. Uh, the first is that we have very close to FDA approval for a rapid antigen test. You can call it a RAT if you want. Uh, this would involve emergency use authorization from the FDA. I'm shooting for, let's say, uh, within, within a week. Maybe I can get it done a little bit, uh, little bit quicker. The point of this test, of course, is you can make a lot of them quickly. Uh, our initial run will be 100,000 per day. Uh, we have a UK facility that can do 4 million a day. I don't see why we can't get to that quite quickly in, in the U.S., these tests cost $10, $10. They're done at the bedside. You do not need a lab. You get the results in 15 minutes. It's basically a pregnancy test, but for COVID-19. So this tells you whether or not you're positive. Uh, and everyone should be taking this test before they go to work. Uh, if you, I mean, there's plenty of instances you all know where people show up to work, they think they feel fine, they're asymptomatic, and they bring down half the office. That will immediately become, be taken off the table uh, by this. Uh, this project is fully funded. Uh, we've already sold uh, the first million, roughly. The Department of Homeland Security is trying to buy everything we can produce, and I would rather sell it to the states. So that's point, point number one, is a test for whether or not you or the people you're testing, the patients in the nursing home or the residents in the nursing home or whatever, whether they have the disease, that test is coming and it was going to be cheap. And it's going to be available on a mass scale. As Victor said, in South Korea, this has been absolutely key. Second point is, that uh, while there's lots of discussion about track and trace systems, I think there's very healthy competition uh, in that space. Uh, there's a project coming out of the MIT Computer Science uh, Department headed by Ron Rivest, who's, who's a legend in cryptography, an automated version with, um, that will allow people who opt in to see where they've been uh, relative to people who've been uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 positive. Now, I think the technology is first rate. The problem there is adoption. It's like Facebook. 100 people using Facebook is not interesting at all. When everybody in the world uses Facebook, you've just changed the world. So how do you drive adoption with that? I think the main way you drive adoption is with very free, if very cheap, if not free, rats, the rapid antigen test. You give them to people who are willing to opt in. You give people a lot of tests if they come in the first 24 hours. You give them fewer tests if they come in subsequently. You guys know how that works. So there's an adoption process around the track and trace. The third piece that, that's really crucial is, of course, the IgM, IgG test. You know these as the antibody tests. Sometimes when people talk about serology tests, that's what they're talking about. This one is, I would say, some weeks away. How many weeks? Uh, ask me on Wednesday. I would say not many weeks, but we're driving this pretty hard as well. Um, it's fully funded. It doesn't need capital. There's some other pieces that uh, I can tell Larry about. He can tell you subsequently. Uh, this test will tell you whether you are immune to COVID-19. So if you're immune, obviously you had it, you survived. You may not, uh, by the way, you may not have known that you had it. Um, if you're immune, the immunity should last. And, you know, the virologists are drilling on this. But I think the safety, six months, okay, very important. It's not a year. It's totally, it's absolutely not three years. If it's six months, you're immune. And you're, and you're almost certainly, I think, 99.7% likely that you're not a carrier. So that's got to be drilled down a little bit more uh, when you stop shedding virus or sh stop shedding virus that, that is uh, infective to other people. But I think six months. So think about it this way. Your workforce, and these tests will be cheap. I mean, they'll be, they'll be extremely cheap, like, like the, the rat test. So think of it like this, your workforce will become, will shift towards, for, for a lot of functions, people you know to be immune from 
uh, further infection and, and spreading COVID-19. So that, of course, changes a lot of things. It changes um, who goes, who takes care of patients and hospitals. It changes who takes care of whom in nursing homes. It changes who can work various parts of the, of the food service chain. And I think what, what we're starting to get our head around and, and happy to talk further offline uh, with Larry and others about this is exactly how you boot up various parts of the economy. That's the reopening strategy, but also the kind of lockdown that you go into. And here I would commend everyone. Uh, I, I'm almost out of time, so I, don't, I can't uh, give you any more detail, but Germany. If we're in a level five lockdown, Germany's in a level three lockdown. And so think about how Germany manages that lockdown and how they do it selectively. In Germany, there's lots of restrictions on going to shops and many shops uh, and stores are closed. But researchers and, and white a lot of white-collar workers can go to work with some social distancing and some caution and with an early warning system that picks up when there are hot spots of reinfection. So let's call it selective social distancing. Right now we have broad social distancing, and you're fully aware of the you know, dramatic economic and human consequences of that. If we go to selective social distancing as a, um, a path or, or a step or a level step function that can be chosen based on actionable intelligence that's pulled in through some sort of integrated Center, then I think it's a completely different, uh, completely different ballgame. Now, will that be done at the federal level? Ha ha ha! No way. Can the states do it? Yes, of course. Uh, can Massachusetts lead the way? We're working on that. Uh, New England as a whole, potentially. If other people would like to connect me with governors, it has to be governors, guys. Chief of staff, the governor, governors, happy to get them involved in the conversation here. Uh, we've got support for this uh, at this stage from Schmidt Futures, who are really leading the way. Uh, fantastic people. Um, if you. You want to talk to them directly, I highly recommend it or, or happy to connect you uh, myself. Um, I think the private sector is going to build it. The government is not coming. I think you know that. And uh, you, of all people, Larry, must have called that from the beginning. The government's not coming. If the federal government comes at all, it gets in the way. You can see that with the war, on P war for PPE in China. The states are struggling. They will get there. And some of, them, some of these governors are, 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 getting, are making more progress. Like where Massachusetts is right now, frankly. Other states are, 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 are close behind. Maybe a couple, of, a couple ahead. Um, the private sector, guys, is building this. The private sector is building the systems that you need to reopen the American economy and to keep it open in the face of, of reinfection. What can you do about it, people on this call? Well, not much, frankly. We have all the capital we need. We're working our way through the process. Uh, if you want to get in line to buy the tests, either the um, antigen test uh, or the IgM, IgG test, then you talk to Larry, and Larry can talk to me. Other people may have more capacity than we do, frankly, to satisfy the near term, but I think providing these tests to localities, to mayors, mayors who get it, mayors who are going to implement systems, governors, absolutely. We're not selling them yet to private firms. We're going more through the government routes, but, you know, let's see. I, I, let's see what works, right? If the, I do believe the private sector is going to lead this country back, lead it back to reopening, and keep it open. Thank you, Larry. Bye, Simon. The terrific. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Alan Auerbach. Uh, Alan was my professor of economics when I attended Penn. He is now a professor of economics and law at the University of California, Berkeley, and I've asked him to talk about the macroeconomic implications of the pandemic. Go ahead, Alan. Thanks, Larry. Uh, let me start with uh, the projections of the federal budget deficit. We've had some recent projections that the federal deficit as a share of GDP this year, next fiscal year, are going to reach levels uh, that we have not seen since during World War II not way, way higher than we had during the uh, global financial crisis, uh, perhaps approaching 20% of GDP. Uh, we, in 1943 to 1945, we had deficits greater than uh, uh, that. Uh, now, that's a useful takeoff point, um, and not just because the deficits are perhaps comparable, um, but because uh, there are many other ways in which uh, our current situation 
is more similar to uh, what we experienced in World War II uh, than a normal recession. Much as uh, many people have pointed out that uh, this is a different recession from uh, a typical recession uh, because the employment drop is bigger, it's faster than we've experienced. Um, uh, but that's not really the only difference. Uh, and there are many uh, characteristics that, as I say, make it look more like what we experienced during World War II. Now, you might say, well, how can that be? In World War II, we had ultra-full employment, uh, and now we have huge unemployment. Um, but if you think of soldiers as not really being employed, um, but doing something else that's not for normal consumption, investment, or export, uh, then they're uh, begin to look a lot like the workers in industries uh, that can't function right now. Um, uh, and indeed, in World War II, we had no production of uh, new houses, cars, consumer durables, uh, just as we're not having production of cars now. Um, in those days, we had auto companies making tanks, uh, not ventilators, uh, but uh, in, in both cases, they're not uh, making regular automobiles. Now, in this situation, uh, we do have a difference. Uh, we have other uh, service industries, restaurants, retail stores, movie theaters, personal services that are also been hit, and that makes it different. I'll come back to that. Um, but if we t- count all the soldiers and treat them as unemployed, you get unemployment rates uh, in World War II of uh, perhaps greater than 25%, uh, not, not close to zero as we reported it. Um, at now, as then, we can't use demand stimulus to increase consumption of those goods and services that aren't happening. Um, we, we don't and uh, really uh, we can't and don't want to uh, uh, somehow give people money and make them go to restaurants. They're not going to do it anyway. Um, and that's why the emphasis has been on relief rather than stimulus uh, 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 and providing necessary funds for public health. And as with war, when uh, it's over, when we return to normal t- activity, we'd expect a period of transition with unemployment, just as we had after World War II, uh, as they could transition. Um, and at the, as at the end of World War II, there may, may be booms in some activities, family formation, fertility, automobile purchases, housing purchases. Uh, but this time, it depends on the extent to which the government continues to pr- provide support to the unemployed Um, And because of the additional sectors that are being uh, hit, avoids wholesale dissolution of small and medium-sized businesses, and also different from uh, World War II, supports state and local governments, because we saw in the Great uh, Recession that uh, their uh, fiscal contractions really um, uh, uh, put a drag on the economy. Uh, In terms of other macro uh, variables, to come back to uh, to the debt, our uh, Debt to GDP, publicly held debt to GDP ratio at the end of World War II was the highest it's ever been, 106%. And current projections are it's going to be that high or higher um, by the time we get to the end of this pandemic. Um, and so we have a similar situation there, but the trajectories are quite different. Government yields now are incredibly low. They weren't high in the 40s, but they were higher and rising. Uh, and that's a positive sign. But on the other hand, and I think this dominates uh, consideration, our federal government picture is very different now. Social Security major health programs uh, in the second half of this decade are projected to uh, account for about 12.5% of GDP and rising way more than half of the federal budget. Um, and projections I've done with my colleague Bill Gale before all this happened suggested deficits of greater than 6% of GDP in 2029. Um, you can add close to a percent of that for additional debt service, uh, even at low interest rates. Uh, and so we're going to have to make some uh, serious uh, uh, adjustments uh, to uh, um, uh, to the budget, even with low interest rates. And I might add that uh, low interest rates 
uh, aren't uh, in, in all cases a good thing. Think of the special problems that state and local governments are going to face uh, as they try to uh, uh, cover the costs of their unfunded liabilities, uh, their, their public employee pensions uh, particularly. Uh, the, the, uh, using realistic uh, uh, discount rates, these are already way uh, underfunded, uh, and it's been getting worse as interest rates have gone down. And if interest rates remain low, uh, that in addition to whatever's happened to the uh, value of assets in the portfolios of the, of the pension funds is going to make it a, a real chore for state and local governments to cover these costs. And finally, let me just say a quick word about inflation. Um, you know, we had inflation at the end. We had price controls in World War II. We had inflation at the end of World War II as pent-up demand was released. Some might worry that we're going to have the same problem now, particularly with the Fed uh, intervening as it has. Um, but I think uh, unless we have the kind of strong in income replacement that I was mentioning before for people in the uh, industries that were hit this time around, um, uh, it's not obvious to me that uh, we're going to have the same concern about inflation uh, that we had at the end of World War II. Thank Thanks. you, Alan. Um, our next speaker is Betsy Stevenson. She is a uh, professor of economics at the University of Michigan, uh, and she, her focus historically has been on U.S. labor markets. Go ahead, Betsy. Uh, thank you, Larry. And um, uh, it's uh, great to have me following um, what Alan was saying. So let me dig into some of the the numbers and a bit more around the labor market. So um, right now, the, we have sort of two sources of data on what's happening with the labor market, initial unemployment insurance claims and the employment report that we saw for what was happening at the, in the first half of March. Um, the last uh, two weeks where we saw unemployment insurance claims of 6.6 uh, .6 and 6.9 million, I think that we want to interpret that as having told us the limits of the system to process um, unemployment insurance claims. Um, the, to put this in perspective, um, normal initial claims, you know, just a, a month or so ago were around 200,000 a week. Um, so I think it's pretty incredible that the system ramped up as quickly as it did. Um, and we saw that uh, the first week in which states had uh, begun shelter-in-place orders um, that the states processed 3.3 million um, in unemployment insurance claims that then jumped up to that 6.9 the next week. So in total, um, we've seen 16.8 uh, million people apply in the past three weeks. That's a lot. To put that in perspective of the 2008 recession, what we saw there was two years of claims averaging 500,000 a week, or you might think of that as an excess 300,000 a week. So obviously a vastly different uh, numbers that are, are much lower, but when you add those up over the, just the two years of 2008, 2009, uh, roughly 30 million more people applied for unemployment insurance because of the recession. And those numbers didn't come back down in 2010 or 2011 um, either. So all that's to say uh, I expect to see um, on Thursday that this week that just ended, we saw another roughly 6 million people will have applied. Um, and I think we've got a few more weeks to go with trying to work through the backlog. Um, the employment report that came out in uh, – the re employment report that, that came out in March was much higher uh, than I expected – or sorry, in, unemployment was much higher than I expected – um, the number of people who had lost their jobs was higher. 
than I would have expected. Employers told us they had 700,000 fewer people on payroll. It is also useful to take a look at the household survey and see what households are saying. Um, Households said that 1.3 million became unemployed and almost all said they were on temporary layoffs. Um, But 3 million people, uh, fewer people were employed. Um, I wanted to point that number out to you because that reflects the fact that not only are people losing their jobs right now, but we've essentially frozen the ability for people to start new jobs. We have a dynamic labor market. That's great. But that also means we have a lot of people flowing into jobs on a typical day. And that's basically come to a halt. And we're going to see those numbers of people who've been prevented from starting jobs um, adding up. So how do we put all these numbers together and think about the unemployment rate? Well, Alan pointed out this isn't like a normal recession. We might see 20 to 30 percent unemployment rate. But what we really care about is the number of jobs that are preserved that people can go back to. Um, So uh, I think that essentially we don't really have the data to take a look at that. And honestly, I don't even think employers know what their recall rate is going to be at this point. Um, But I think the idea that people had that we are hitting a pause button and we will take our finger off the pause button, all these people will go back to their jobs, I think that's just wrong. I think we're going to see really massive uh, sectoral realignment, and that's going to come because of some of the things that other people on the call have said about how we go back to work. It's not going to look a lot like uh, what we were doing. We're not just going to go back and do everything we were doing in January. Um, We're going to have a bunch of people whose jobs are destroyed, and those destroyed jobs are going to put them in a position of having to find new work, and it will be like a regular recession um, uh, in terms of delays, um, you know, as a result, I think that we've got nine to 10% unemployment rates, uh, on the horizon for a little while to come. Um, and I think the biggest warning will be, uh, that as we see job growth start to surge and we will see that as people are brought off temporary, uh, layoffs, we need to realize that's not real job growth. That's not the. That's just going to be the people who are pulled back into the jobs that were preserved. What is going to matter for actually going back to say 2019 levels of GDP levels of production will be what is the unemployment rate once we've pulled people back to the jobs that were preserved. What share of the economy had jobs that were destroyed, and what will be the sectoral realignment that occurs as people perhaps dine out less, um, uh, go to concerts less, uh, just live their lives somewhat differently um, as a result of the prevention that's needed. You know, if the kind of things that Simon Johnson were saying are right, we can all do a rapid uh, anti-gen test when we get up in the morning, uh, perhaps we'll be recovering a lot faster. Uh, Otherwise, I I fear that that the rate of of permanent job destruction is going to be higher than people initially expected. Perfect. Or terrible. Um, Thanks, Betsy. Um, Our next speaker is Dr. Carrie Christine Nadeau. She is a professor of allergy at Stanford University. Go ahead, Carrie. Hi. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Great. Uh, So my name is Carrie, and I'm a professor in immunology as well as allergy and asthma, and I run the Sean Parker Center at Stanford and do a lot of clinical research, but also a lot of basic science in my lab. And I've been very involved in the COVID-19 research that's been going on at Stanford. So I thought I'd quickly tell you about 
what to do personally, what's happening on a population basis, at least here in the Bay Area, and then also what we hope to expect around the globe. Uh, and then finally, give some hope and promise in terms of what therapies are out there and what prognostics might be able to be done at home with microsampling to know whether or not someone has been treated well or if someone's immune. And Simon gave some great introductions as to what's happening with MIT. So personally, I've been going to the hospital and a lot of my colleagues, nurses and physicians are going daily to make sure that we take care of patients. I'm sure everyone saw the 15-minute special as to what's happening in our city, but many places around the country are hit hard. Importantly, is we really want to emphasize to decrease the death rate, decrease inpatients, as well as help the outpatients. So our focus right now is on outpatients. But personally, what I'm finding is if people can keep their social distancing, can keep to the hand sanitizer rule, people are doing very well not getting the virus. In addition, on the populational side, once the governor put into place our shelter-in-place rules and guidelines, if you look at California, so the six counties that were initially suspended and put into shelter-in-place, we are now seeing a decrease in numbers. So I'm an optimist, but I also am a realist, and that is very good to see that the shelter-in-place actually did what it was supposed to do, and we're trying, you know, last week, we're seeing a trail-off. But we're also careful because that could change. We don't want to have a rational exuberance over that number. But importantly is we're only as good as our tools and our data. So the reason we think that that plateauing actually is real is because Stanford right now with our RT-PCR, we're offering it to patients uh, with exposures or without exposures. So we've tested about 7,000 people randomly. And so we're able to detect who in the community has the exposure. And even though we're not at Korea levels yet, we are trying to keep those people that are COVID-19 positive informed and quarantined immediately. So at least within our area, we're trying to do as much as we can to suspend the exposure of this virus. Um, finally, we are developing, as Simon had mentioned, the immune test, which I think is very important for people in the workforce. So we are only, again, as good as our data. There's a lot of published opinions out there. We need published data on the science around the immunology. There's tons of kits that are being tested. Stanford this weekend is doing 3,000 people, um, many of them healthcare workers, for which we know were COVID-19 positive back in January and February. And so we are looking at their immune level, and if we can test their immunity, we can then look at those characteristics and those levels of this molecule called immunoglobulin that protects them against reinfection. And so that's really critical because for the workforce, if we can get to this kit level, at home level microsampling that we are doing in about 2,000 to 3,000 people this weekend, we will be able to publish and hopefully that data will help a lot of people know when to go back into the workforce and when it's not appropriate. And then finally, on the hope and promise of therapies, there's a lot of information out there in terms of what works, what doesn't work, the Infectious Disease Society just published a paper this week saying there still needs to be tests. We still need randomized controlled trials. The FDA has done an incredible job fast-tracking at warp speed uh, the applications that are coming through diagnostically as well as on the therapeutic side. There's a lot of information on remdesivir and some other molecules. Happy to talk about that during the question and answer session. I think there's a lot of hope and promise out there. I think that one drug particularly might not work, but we need a combination of therapies. 
the people that are having a lot of trouble right now surviving this virus are people with vascular disease. To some extent, it's the immune system, but in addition, it's people with vascular disease, people that have smoked, people that have vaped, people that are not doing well in terms of blood pressure, the elderly. So because this virus uses our vascular cells to um, a target to get into our bodies, oftentimes it's people with vascular disease that are getting hit the hardest. Uh, I'll stop there. Terry, thank you so much. Um, we have a lot of questions for you later. Um, our next sure. speaker is Ted Ho. Um, Ted is the CEO of Echo Diagnostics. Um, he's also a fraternity brother of mine. Ted, fire away. Thanks, Larry, um, and thank you, everyone. Uh, before this call, I would have—I I would just to give you a feel for how quickly things are changing. Before this call, I would have told you we're we're four to eight weeks away, or or maybe several months away from having a rapid. Uh, antigen test in the market that was low cost and, and, you know, hearing Simon talk about what's going on at MIT is exciting. Um, we're certainly far, far ahead of, of where I thought we were even, uh, even just today. So, uh, and, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, kind of the, the background of where did things go wrong in the lab industry? What, how did we get into this problem where, uh, virtually every uh, every evening on the news, we keep hearing about the dearth of lab testing. So um, talk a little bit about that and, and then also uh, kind of share my thoughts on where we go, uh, where we go yeah. from here. So uh, since the beginning of the crisis, politicians and, and uh, clinicians have been talking about this, this lab testing challenge. And with hundreds of high complexity labs across the country, a well-coordinated rollout of new testing procedures could have easily created all the testing capacity we needed to fight the pandemic. So, so why did not, hasn't that happened yet? Um, as planning for potential pandemics has been going on for many, many years. And one of the fundamental assumptions that I've heard in, in each of those exercises is that it's always been assumed that we would have a high quality lab test available in all the quantities necessary. And, and, and that has simply proven to not be the case. It started, uh, I think, back with CDC in, in the early days, putting out a test that was not good, that did not work well. Um, and also, the government erred in not marshalling the full capacity of the lab industry it's a, it, in the early stages. I think we all expected the large national labs, uh, Quest and LabCorp, to easily be able to ramp up capacity and handle the testing, and that's just, that's just not been the case. Um, individual labs like mine uh, made the mistake of believing that that was, that was how it's going to be played out, and so we were late to the game in getting our own testing up and online. So uh, we started behind, and we've stayed behind, and we've been playing catch-up ever since. And what we've seen is the backup, uh, the backlog in testing is mounted at the national labs. Um, testing capacity now is finally growing daily by the thousands. Um, rapid tests, as we're hearing, are being developed and deployed at hospitals by the thousands each day. But we're still hearing about, hearing from, you know, Governor Cuomo and governors around the country saying they don't have enough testing. Um, so how do we reconcile that, uh, what I've said about the capacity coming up in, in massive amounts? And one of the challenges we've got is there is no effective way uh, to understand lab testing capacity in the country. Um, there's no centralized place that um, a, a healthcare facility can go to find out who might have available testing capacity. So it, it really is kind of a wild west in terms of uh, labs setting up testing and having to go out and find 
uh, places that need testing. And that, that's a day-to-day changing uh, dynamic in the industry. And uh, we, we could have certainly used much better coordination at a federal level early on, um, public-private partnerships to understand lab capacity, testing capabilities, getting standardized testing out to the hundreds of high-complexity community labs that we have have around the country could have could have gone a long way to help to help so um that's kind of this the background that, that has gotten us into the situation we're in today um and as other speakers have said until we have a reliable vaccine an outright cure or highly effective treatments lab testing will have to be a core component of our plans to open the economy going forward um, we've heard about antibody testing coming on on the market um, Antibody testing, and, and we heard the last speaker, um, uh, Dr. Nadu, talk about um, wanting to make sure that we understand how the disease confers immunity. Um, it's not a given that once you've had it, you'll never get it again. And, and the study she described at Stanford, I think, will go a long way towards helping us understand that. But at least now I'm hearing the same things that Dr. Nadeau said that there is some sort of presumed immunity. I've heard anywhere from six months to two years. Um, so an antibody test that is effective uh, will go uh, a long way towards helping us understand who's at risk and who's not. Um, but I'll also caution, and I'd love to hear during the Q&A, um, you know, the, the lab testing has gotten some um, negative feedback because of, of issues with accuracy. Um, the PCR test, that's the test that's looking for uh, the genetic components of the virus, is, is the most accurate test in the market today. But even that test has between a 20 and 25 percent false negative rate is what I've heard, uh, which is driven primarily because of the challenges of working with the specimen types that we're dealing with. So we're, we're not dealing with blood. We're dealing with, with mucus, sputum, uh, et cetera. So collecting a good sample makes all the difference in terms of having a high quality lab test. Um, and likewise, uh, antibody testing, while now you're talking about, uh, you know, probably I'm assuming finger prick, blood, specimen, uh, some sort of lateral flow technology, Simon was describing like a pregnancy test. Um, it's easy to do. Blood is, is by far the best specimen type, but antibody tests, uh, can have widely varying uh, accuracy levels. Uh, the sensitivity can vary dramatically. So making sure we've got high quality testing uh, is going to be critical. And then as other speakers, speakers have talked about, learning from uh, South Korea, how South Korea has deployed and uh, the tracking systems and so on and in conjunction with ongoing social distancing and such is, is critical to getting the economy open um, and getting consumer confidence back. Um, Larry? Ted, great. Um, just like w- one quick question for you. Um, you mentioned that it's difficult to get a good specimen. Um, how do you imagine, it, is that going to be a self-done? Like you put a swab in your throat or put a swab in your nose? Uh, how uncomfortable is that? And will, um, c- can you imagine going to work where, you know, the receptionist is going to stick something in your throat or up your nose? Well, there's, the FDA has allowed for uh, self-collection of nasal specimens. So think of it as kind of a Q-tip that uh, you would rub in your own nose to create it. And then you would take it and, and put it into a, a test tube and then put it in a bag. And so you would kind of self-seal it up. Um, we're actually, our lab is actually running a study right now, a, a 
parallel study where we take um, specimens collected by healthcare workers on a patient, and then that same patient collects their own nasal specimen. So we're going to we're going to compare. Um, now this is for the PCR test that I mentioned. We're going to um, compare test results. Um, we've got a several hundred patient population that we're we're doing that on this week, actually. Um, so, but that is one of the biggest challenges. So the a, a blood-based antigen or antigen test. Also, I haven't talked about the antibody test that that others have discussed. Um, uh, those will be those will be huge. And and if we get a, a a good rapid technology that can be self-administered that costs ten dollars, that 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 will be um, a, a great way to get things going back on the right road. And I, um, I'd love to hear what, uh, what what Brendan thinks about applying that technology to his employee base. Okay. Brendan's our next speaker. Brendan Hoffman is the CEO of Vince Holding. Uh, he's the former CEO of Bontar and Lord and & Taylor. Uh, Brendan is also a fraternity brother of mine. Go ahead, Brendan. Thank you, Larry. <clears throat> Thanks for clarifying why you included me with such an accomplished group of speakers. Some quick background, Vince is a public company, so my remarks will be focused more generally around what I'm seeing and hearing in the industry rather than specifically to Vince. We're a contemporary global fashion apparel brand with a full collection of men's and women's apparel and shoes. We have 60 of our own stores in the U.S. and London, along with Vince.com. We're one of the largest brands at Neiman Marcus and Nordstrom here in the U.S., as well as top specialty stores throughout the country. Globally, we have shops and stores like Harrods, Galleria's Lafayette, and Lane Crawford, just to name a few. Other brands in our space you might know include Theory, Rag and & Bone, and Tory Burch. The pandemic has, of course, had a major impact on our industry, as still the majority of sales are done through the brick-and-mortar channel, which has been shut down now for going on a month. Initially, when it started in China, we were worried about the disruption to our supply chain, as 90% of our goods are imported from there. We felt we had managed through that well enough before the virus entered the U.S., a month ago, we were beginning a new phase of growth, including international store openings, new product launches, acquisitions, et cetera. We are now solely focused on getting to the other side of this crisis and resetting from there. A bright spot, at least on the higher end, has been the continuation of the e-commerce business. Online has been strong and has picked up some of the drop in the store business, but it's being done at a discount. Most sites are 25% off, but at least the affluent customer does seem willing to shop if you give her a reason to which in this case is a straightforward discount. Anecdotally, we are seeing some shifts by classification within apparel, as work from home and video meetings have made the focus clearly on tops, while we were all wear our sweatpants out of the camera's sight. Critically important has been the ability to have our warehouse and fulfillment centers deemed essential and remain open during the crisis to allow us to process and deliver the e-commerce demand. Regarding rent due to our retail landlords, most brands in our space have not paid retail rent for April and have no intention to pay while the stores are closed and we have little incoming cash. Initially, the landlords were posturing that they expected rents to be paid on time and in full despite the fact that the centers were closed. However, this has evolved in the discussions I've had with some of the landlords as they are, they are looking to defer rent, not abate them. Well, I don't think this is the realistic outcome is that would still put almost the entire burden on the tenants. It solves the cash flow problem in the near term. Do we eventually split the payments or just add the term in the back end? Those seem like more equitable solutions that will be negotiated at a later date. As far as the flow of goods for the balance of the year, it is changing dramatically and we were working through the implications, not just of the store closings, but the supply chain interruptions around the world, which are much more extreme than when the virus was isolated in China. Typically, we would have four collections a year split into monthly deliveries. 
Right now, I feel like we are all playing Top Chef and cooking with leftovers to reassort future deliveries. April, May, and June will get pushed out to deliver over the summer, and June and July will deliver after Labor Day. All these goods were in the warehouse in transit or in work. Most of the cancellations are around the August to January receipts. Maybe some small capsule collections for holiday, depending on the brand. But as one of my colleagues said, we hope it will be a warm fall since we will be selling summer merchandise through Thanksgiving. Most brands I talked to are focused on getting back to a more normal flow of goods by February. But even that is challenging because of the long lead times inherent in our supply chain. That development would normally be happening now, and the reduced teams we have are, are having to function remotely, which works less well for certain roles. Speaking of workforce reductions, similar to most in our space, we had no choice but to do mass furloughs. I hope it's the hardest thing I will ever have to do in my career. We furloughed all of our store employees and over half of our corporate employees, 75% of our workforce in total. We are protecting their benefits in the interim. The rest of us and our board have taken tiered salary reductions and additional deferments. As for the changes this will have an industry going forward, I don't believe it changes the path we were on directionally, but it's going to accelerate the move to e-commerce and could do so dramatically on the other side of this. You also have to wonder if there will be as many department stores or stores in general, so shoring up your own direct-to-consumer channel increases in importance and urgency. How soon will people return to shopping centers? Many of the large malls have been bringing in foot traffic, foot traffic through new restaurant and entertainment offerings. What will this look like on the other side of this? I do believe people will still want to buy clothes, even as they have gotten used to wearing the same outfit over and over during the last month. The space I am in is more about the emotional connection to the clothing rather than the functional use. Fortunately, the customer has always had the emotional pull to update her wardrobe regardless of need. How she shops might change, as I mentioned a moment ago. Rental could also become important. We launched our own rental site in 2018, which was doing very well, so does that take on added relevance? Will people have the disposable income to shop is another question. I think that is more relevant for the lower price brands and stores whose customer base will be potentially dealing with high unemployment. I think this will be less applicable for luxury, which has proven to be resilient through the last few crises. I do think that there will be less brands and stores, so those that have a relevant brand and make it to the other side can balance some of the headwinds with there being less competition in the space. Lastly, this has been a major lesson that I hope I never have had to learn on managing people through the pandemic and economic destruction. I thought last year was challenging with the uncertainty around tariffs that impacted us dramatically, but that was a breeze compared to this. I have found the two most important things have been being honest with the team and being empathetic. We have made sure we have communicated with them constantly and are working on the right cadence and tone to speak to them during this awkward time when they are furloughed but still part of our Vince family and crucial to our long-term goals. I sign off my communications with them with a phrase one of my mentors said to me the other week, be safe, be well, and be kind. So I will leave it at that. Thank you, Larry. Brendan, thank you. Um, I'll start with my first question for you, Brendan. Um, Betsy Stevenson mentioned in her talk that she was wondering about how people are going to get rehired. Um, have you thought about once the green light is established, um, what portion of, you know, I don't because you, you're a public company or maybe you say in, in, in your industry, how do you think rehiring will work? Um, do you now recognize that there's some workers who you don't want back? Do you think your industry has is, is changed in some fundamental way so that the number of employees will be different? 
Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the next questions we'll have to, uh, to answer. Obviously, uh, we hope to bring them all back, and that's been kind of my stated goal to them is to bring them back home. And, you know, we feel that burden now for those of us who are remaining active to, to do so. But, but I think fundamentally, as we've been discussing, uh, things will shift and change. So we might uh, need to reallocate, reallocate our resources. So even if in totality it stays the same, uh, the needs of the business could shift. And, and certainly that's something we will be working on going forward and, and trying to be proactive about. Uh, Betsy, uh, my question is for you. Um, you know, one of your old jobs was you were chief economist of our Bureau of Labor Statistics, and you were responsible for the household survey. Um, given the differences between this recession and previous ones, it seems like the questions we would want to ask in the household survey would be a little bit different than normal. Um, is it possible to change the nature of the survey uh, quickly to find out some of the questions that economists will want to know? Um, I think that's a great question. And in short, I think the answer is no. I mean, it would be great to get a survey into the, you know, into the field. Um, you know, this, this coming week is actually the reference week. So they're going to be asking people what they're doing uh, this week. They uh, will they change the survey? No. Um, uh, four weeks from now, they'll be doing it again. Will they be able to change the survey? No. What we could see, um, and this is actually something I'm I'm hoping to do is, you know, we could see some private efforts to um, try to replicate the baseline questions and then add on some additional questions and smaller sample size. But I do think, you know, what is it that we need to know? We need to know things like what are people's expectations of whether their job's going to be there. What are their expectations about um, you know, whether they'll they'll be going back to doing the same thing, um, as well as some sort of better understanding about their own financial situation? Some of that we will get out of the consumer um, expenditure survey, but I don't think we'll get enough of that out of the household survey. And. You know, one of the unusual aspects in terms of the new government programs is this small business loan to stop the hemorrhaging of jobs of small businesses. Uh, what, are your, what is your thought about that program? How do you think its efficacy will end up being, and um, what are the implications for small businesses that will not, you know, don't apply to this program? So, first of all, I think that leaning on the unemployment insurance system to get a money in people's hands is fine. It's good. I'm glad they did it. I don't think it's going to make a big difference in terms of whether people are recalled. Um, you know, so I think employers, you just heard a commitment. We want to bring people back. I don't think if we were as a government paying them to keep them on payroll versus letting them get money through the unemployment insurance is going to change that desire to bring people back. Now, what's going on with the, the Paycheck Protection Act? I think that for some businesses it will be really helpful, but the businesses it's going to help are going to be those that don't see their revenues go to zero, that see them drop significantly. Um, when they get that little bit of help, they'll be able to maintain payroll. I got an email from a small business owner that I thought really summed up her problem. She's like, I'm completely shut down. This is going to give me two and a half months of payroll, but I don't see myself making up revenue for six to eight months. I can't afford to take on this loan that, yes, it's a grant that will be forgiven, but where, what do I do after two months? What's going to happen next? Um, I think a lot of – she's a small business. She has about 50 employees. 
I think a lot of small business owners like that that are completely shut down right now do not see the Paycheck Protection Act working for them. I think it's working better for businesses that have seen a decline but not an abrupt stop to their revenue. Thanks, Betsy. Um, my next question is for Carrie about um, some of the issues related to the, the medical problems. Um, when you think about the size of the asymptomatic population, um, we, did, we chatted offline that you thought there was a substantial asymptomatic population out there. Um, what do you think it is, and how will we be able to figure it out, um, and how will that impact public policy? Yeah, I think there are a number of people that we've been testing through research here at Stanford, and the data will be published soon. So when that comes, I'll send it to you right away, Larry, so you can send it to the group. But there is a substantial proportion that are asymptomatic out there in the community. Um, a number of people do have it. It is a pandemic. Uh, in California, because we had the second case in January um, in one of our local hospitals, as well as some of the cruise lines were quarantined here, and we had an Air Force base and the VA next door. I think those were some of the key items that catalyzed Stanford for being one of the epicenters for the, the virus. But in that silver lining, we now have been able to trace people's immune system over time as well to look at whether or not people are protected against possible reinfection. So all that data will be coming out. But it is true, many people um, were asymptomatic. People that you would have predicted, people that are young as well as without vascular disease, but not always. There were some people that had immunodeficiencies that were also asymptomatic completely. So there are still mysteries here. Most important is to get the data uh, before we have strong facts. But we do have a lot of strong facts coming out from other countries as to how to make sure that we can prevent continued exposure and continued contagion. And I think the shelter-in-place has really helped California a lot try to get ahead of these numbers. That being said, I know we really want to open our economy as well. Um, and if we calculate yeah. the asymptomatic response, uh, we may find out yeah. that the death rate for this pandemic might be not that different from a typical flu. It's just a little bit more contagious. That's right. And it really depends on our tools. So I think the business around the diagnostics, as we've heard about today, is going to be important, as well as diagnostics and can be done quickly. Uh, this MIT company, I'm so glad that they have something that can be done at the home. We've been doing that as well, and it's good to know that they are they are um, working. And right now, the RT-PCR test, I think people were questioning in terms of the positive predictive value, the negative predictive value, depending on the actual primer that's used. I'm sorry to be so nerdy, but it really does depend on the kit. And if the kit is used well with a nasal swab, the data right now shows that it has over 90% positive predictive value and a very low negative predictive value rate. So that is good. But there are some people that if you don't go deep enough into the airway, you're not going to be able to find the virus. So that's where in any test you want to make sure that the negative predictive value is, um, is really good so that we can make sure that if a test is negative, it's truly negative. I'm, I'm worried about some of the um, the response the behavior, let's say you take the test, um, it says that you don't have the virus, um, but it's a false it's a false negative and you actually are a carrier. Right. Uh, it will change your behavior. You might be, a little, I'll say, a little bit more reckless, uh, also less for social distancing. How do you think about the social norm behavior when we have tests that give you these false negatives? 
That's why I think that the RT-PCR test in conjunction with the serology test, the antibody test, is going to be important. And there are a lot of business people and people that know economics way more than I do, but what I hope scientifically is that by having both of those tests in your pocket, literally, to be able to do at home with good positive predictive value and good negative predictive value ratings, both on the RT-PCR as well as the immunity test, that those two things used together will be able to let people operate back in the community and get back to work. We're doing that already for our healthcare workers at Stanford because 40% of our workforce had to um, stay at home because of various conditions. But now, you know, we're looking at trying to come back. But the key thing as well is viral shedding. And we don't know enough about viral shedding. It's found in school. It's found in saliva up to six weeks after someone has the virus. And so we also need to understand about the science about that shedding and whether or not someone is still contagious. So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I definitely want to make sure all of you know scientifically there's still a lot to be done and we're only as good as our data. But I do hope that with the diagnostics the way they are, we can actually figure out who can go back uh, to the workforce and work. And for those that can go back to the workforce now, for example, we mitigate those risks. We know that we could get exposed, but we use the proper equipment to be able to decrease that exposure. So I'm hoping that the business sector can work within these workflows and uh, and operate. Do you think it would be reasonable to quarantine those people at risk in the elderly and allow kids to go back to school? <laughs> That's a big question. There are countries, um, like our colleague mentioned in the very beginning, in which there are specific dedicated uh, areas where the shelter in place have occurred, but not everyone. And so I think we need to look back at the data and see to what extent did closing the schools actually help plateau the curve. And it was really only until shelter in place occurred that it, we actually saw a plateau, not necessarily school closures. So to the extent that we can use the data to make decisions like you're asking, Larry, I think hopefully uh, we can. But right now, I'd say that we already have some data in our hands to say what, to what extent did government uh, guidelines help or not help decrease this disease. We haven't really talked about treatments much on the call. What, um, what do you think is working, what's not working? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of different ways to approach a virus. One is to prophylax, so if someone gets exposed to a virus, you can try to prevent it uh, from becoming symptomatic in an individual that was just exposed to it. And so that occurred, let's say, with influenza and Tamiflu, but we're all familiar with the fact that Tamiflu, in the end, didn't really find to be um, working either prophylactically or even therapeutically in people that already had the flu. So that taught us a lot from the microbiology standpoint, virology, and I'm not an expert in this, but I can tell you that there are a number of investigations underway. Remdesivir works to an extent. Gilead's working hard. It has its... FDA randomized controlled trial that hopefully will come out soon from China and the U.S. There's another drug that is being tested, hydroxychloroquine. There's 15,000 people being tested in Duke right now. So I think we're going to have some answers very shortly on the horizon for what's the best treatment for the outpatient and then what's the best treatment for the inpatient. But I think a lot of people are probably going to need combination therapies like we saw with HIV and hepatitis. You need to do combo to really get at these viruses. Viruses have evolved with us over time. 
We've all had colds. We've all had colds multiple times. And our immunity is one thing, but if we can actually get at these viruses before they become so disastrous in our bodies, that's one area where we want to make sure we develop therapies to prevent death. So we're going at it full force, not just Stanford, but many other places around the world. So it's really great that we'll have data soon, but I do think, Larry, we will have some answers shortly. Great. Uh, my next question is for Alan Auerbach. Alan, um, when I was your student, um, you used to emphasize that we, we can't have it all. We have to make uh, scarce resources. We have to make decisions, and we have to look about for the future. Um, given the scale of these government deficits in the next year or two, um, we have to obviously give something back. You mentioned some of these social programs are also going to be very expensive. Um, do you think while we're making these big payments, it may be a good time to, to maybe make a reduction in our social security system? Or do you think that's politically infeasible? One example might be to defer Social Security for 12 months, as an example. What do you think? Well, I, I think uh, uh, you you answered the question yourself. I think it's not politically feasible in the short run. I think, you, you know, in terms of uh, generational justice, which has uh, come up uh, in, in the political campaign recently, uh, particularly as there's been an emphasis on how the older cohorts are more at risk, uh, for this disease, one way, if you if you look at what's happening, uh, our our uh, uh, policy uh, reacting, the social distancing and so forth, uh, and, and there's a very there's a generational uh, aspect to it in which the young uh, are being uh, asked to uh, sacrifice to help the old. Um, you might think of that as a a, a new social security program, uh, and uh, I think one could certainly make the argument uh, when the dust settles after. Uh, the pandemic has passed, uh, hopefully in, in not too long in the future, um, that uh, the old have benefited um, uh, disproportionately from uh, the measures that we took. Many uh, in the younger generations uh, will have suffered disproportionately. Um, and that could uh, constitute a political argument for finally uh, uh, attacking the problem of uh, infeasible entitlements that we have. Uh, whether that happens uh, in our current uh, political climate that's so dysfunctional, I don't know, but um, it would be nice to see that. I don't think that, that can happen now. I think there's just too much going on, but but in, in the future, if possible. Okay. Um, my next question is for Victor Chai. Victor's still on the line. Um, Victor, are you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. So uh, a couple questions. First, you know, we've gotten all sorts of information from China um, about the success and failure of their policies. Um, some people, we don't believe some of it. We believe other stuff. What do you believe um, about the death rates and the other health, public health information from China? Uh, I think I have the same degree of skepticism that most people have with regard to both uh, the death rates and, um, yeah, and related to that, the question of whether they're counting in the infection rate, whether they're counting asymptomatic cases, um, you know, um, I mean, it's a real problem. I mean, from people I've talked to both on the political side who've asked for China to be uh, more frank in sharing information, and obviously from the medical side, they don't feel like they have accurate data from China. Korea, I think, has been pretty transparent about what they've done, uh, and I think they learned about the importance of transparency from when they had the mayor's outbreak um, several years ago when the government was not as transparent 
initially, and they they learn from those mistakes. And you, you're also an expert on North Korea. Um, yeah. I know North Korea, you know, not being an open economy, probably didn't get that many uh, foreigners in that would have brought the disease, but they do have an open border at some point with China. Um, what are you hearing from North Korea about their uh, infection rates? How will they be able to handle it? Do you think this is a threat to their regime, or will people just die and no one even know about it? Well, I think, I mean, I don't think they can handle it. I mean, uh, they don't, um, they certainly don't have the capability. Uh, they have reported zero infection rates, which nobody believes, just by virtue of the fact that they are sandwiched between the two first and earliest outbreaks, South Korea and China. And as you said, Larry, there's a unique transmission vector through China um, to North Korea, about the only place that they do allow um, uh, border travel. Um, so there have been reports that North Korea is clo- they're basically quarantining and locking down um, uh, certain parts of the population, uh, which many people believe are where they, they suspect that there are cluster outbreaks. Uh, there's very little information about the city, the area that matters most, which is the capital city of Pyongyang, um, because that would be where uh, an outbreak could potentially create some regime instability. Um, and um, and we just don't know. They have reached out to NGOs to provide um, test kits and uh, and the ability to evaluate those test kits because they can't do that themselves. Um, and um, I think UNICEF and, and the, so there has been sanctions, humanitarian exemption for sanctions relief on this particular um, area through the UN sanctions regime. Uh, but notably, the North Korea North Korea has rejected any uh, help from the United States. You know, Trump sent a le- sent a letter to Kim saying he'd offer help, but the North Koreans have expressly rejected that. I mean, uh, completely aside from that, I expect that there'll be a lot more missile provocations by North Korea because historically they do those um, in U.S. election years. That's funny. Do you, uh, if you had to put the probability of regime change in North Korea, would this year be because of this? a higher probability of regime change than normal, or would you say it's, it's about the same as usual? I would say if we, had, if, there was, if we heard that there was a significant outbreak in Pyongyang, in the capital city, then I think the chances would be higher, much, would be, I don't know, much higher. They'd be marginally higher of uh, some sort of regime instability. Uh, particularly if the leadership got it, we'd never know. But certainly if there was some reporting of some sort of outbreak in Pyongyang or a rushing of test kits, you know, by UNICEF or the NGOs into the capital city. Okay. My next question is for Phil Tetlock. Phil, um, we've heard a lot of predictions on this call related to the benefits of testing. Um, How would you create questions for your super forecasters to evaluate this, I'll call it, fast-developing new environment? Oh, that's easy. I would talk to the epidemiologists and physicians. <laughs> that's not my that's not my domain. So, what? Um, maybe just try a different nature of the question. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting areas that we don't understand. We don't understand how our economy will restart. We don't understand how um, how the treatments will work. Um, how do you think super forecasters? are able to incorporate all this new information and help um, or make better predictions than everybody else on this? 
Well, it's to be determined how much better they are than everybody else. I mean, the literature suggests that it's very hard to beat simple trend extrapolation algorithms, you know, predict the most recent rate of change. So the open question here is whether the uh, best forecasters we have are outperforming those trend extrapolation algorithms. Um, and uh, there are one or two questions where they seem to be, but uh, it's too early to tell. And uh, for the past couple of weeks, I designed surveys to elicit responses from the people on this call. Um, what sort of advice would you give me in, in designing future questions to um, tease out relevant information? You know, a lot of people don't have a lot of confidence around some estimates. Is, is that mean that we sh I should not give those responses a lot of weight? Or is sort of the means helpful in establishing where we're probably headed? Oh, boy. Uh, it's been a fascinating series of uh, talks. And in each talk, or most, almost all the talks, I could, I could spot um, uh, what we might call vague verbiage hunches that people have about propensities and probabilities that could be readily translated into forecasting questions. Uh, I'd be really curious, for example, what Victor Cha thinks the true death rate is in China or what he thinks the baseline probability of regime change in, is in North Korea and how much it would be nudged by, um, by an epidemic in Pyongyang. Uh, there's just a long list of things that people have said that would would would, would translate, and we'd ha I'd have to go over the transcript to reconstruct them all. But uh, it, it's it's been a, it's, it's a rich set of offerings. Thank you. My next question is for Jonathan Haidt. Um, Jonathan, um, you know, young people really haven't had this generation of young people really haven't had much challenges, and this is really um, something new for them. What? Um, why do you think this is a source of strength? How does it? different from some of the other behaviors that parents have engaged in uh, where we have, where we've been coddling the, uh, the American youth? Well, from looking at, at past crises, looking at a little bit of research on how people respond to the Great Depression, it does look like there's a kind of a sensitive period within which adversity is maximally beneficial. Uh, if you're, you know, three, four, five years old, no, it's not. If you're over 30, it may not be as beneficial. Uh, but especially when people are late childhood, teenage years, um, in those years, adversity, that's when you see the most growth. Uh, there's a new book, The Power of Bad, by John Tierney and Roy Baumeister, that also says that, that young people are the ones who benefit most from, from badness. Now, one complication here is that stress is very, very good uh, for, for kids, but it's short-term stress that tends to lead to growth. Chronic stress is not. Chronic stress is, leads to all kinds of complications. So if kids are, we don't know yet. I, don't, I haven't seen any data on how, uh, what's, what's the, what is happening at home. Are children really anxious chronically um, or are they treating it like a snow day? Uh, so I think we need to know more about how this is affecting kids, but, uh, but especially those who suddenly see the world is harder. Um, they can't have the same expectations or entitlements. Um, I think we can expect, uh, we can expect a lot of people to grow from this. Howard, question for you. You seem to think uh, that Systematically, we underestimated the risk to, the, to a pandemic, um, and we were slow to respond. Um, different societies responded quicker. Um, you know, we've established all sorts of pandemic-related organizations that have been working on this, these sort of problems for years. Um, although we didn't have enough ventilators and masks, we're now producing them at a very rapid rate. And it isn't clear or obvious that masks or ventilators will actually change the death rates ultimately. Um, what, what do you think that we got right and what do you think we got wrong and how can you know, risk management techniques help us do better? 
Well, I think we got things right, uh, but it was a little late in our country. I think the model that Victor talked about in South Korea is the one that we should have tried to pay more attention to at an early stage. I think once things really uh, took off, as we uh, saw in March, then there were really regulations and other, uh, other things that were done that at least got us with, uh, to deal with social distancing. I think the real challenge has been on the testing side, as everyone says, has mentioned, because we don't have a good denominator. We don't know essentially uh, how many people might actually have the coronavirus. And without that information, it's really hard to know how you're going to take the next step with respect to opening up uh, the economy in a way and et cetera because of the challenges that uh, Fauci and others have pointed out uh, publicly in terms of, the, of what we're going through. I think uh, so from the vantage point of what we have right, we now understand the situation a great deal better than we did back in January, February. How we take advantage of that in the future is an open question. How we take advantage of that now, of course, is uh, something that we're all struggling with in the context of, of the trade-offs between uh, opening up the economy and then actually dealing with the uh, numbers of deaths. On the ventilator side, I think we probably have done better than people anticipated, and there are companies that have actually uh, promoted their own results. I think 3M or one of, the, one of the companies actually provided other companies with data to produce ventilators, so I think we're doing far better uh, on that. I think the real challenge is going to be when we say we've hit a level playing field, level uh, uh, numbers of people who have been actually infected, are we going to be in a position where people are going to take steps now to say, let's get back to work, and that might be too quickly. All right, so historically these calls have been very, very negative. Actually, I found this call to be actually quite optimistic, but I still want to end on a good note, and I thought I would just go around to the speakers in our conclusion and just say one thing that they are optimistic about and why this, um, this why it's not dark outside, but you know, it's, it's morning in America, if you will. Anyway, I don't know if Josh Harris is still online. Josh, if you could say something. If not, um, John Height, why don't you start with you? Yeah, no, I'm on. I mean, I think just in terms of optimism, look, I think, you know, I'm very optimistic about just the amount of focus and innovation that's going on to uh, to advance rapid testing and contact tracing and therapeutics. Uh, you know, obviously it's going to take a little longer to bring a cure, so I'm very optimistic about that and I'm also very optimistic about um, and, and us making more progress than it would seem like we should based on where we started and I'm also optimistic about the use of technology that I'm seeing going on in the workplace to work around you know social distancing and I think uh, once some of the cases subside I think you'll see businesses you know innovate in an extreme way to try to start to get back to work. Thanks, John. John? Uh, yes, John Hay. Um, I'm optimistic because for the last five years, I've been extraordinarily pessimistic about the future of American democracy. Um, I would give talks and I would frighten myself with how dark I thought the forecast was given the trends in our politics and government and trust. Um, and I think uh, a shared adversity like this, something so disruptive, uh, kind of pushes us as a kind of a slider switch from, from I to we, as Rabbi Sachs has been talking about. And uh, as we've gotten more and more individualistic over the decades and, and less and less connected to each other, that makes it harder, I think, to have a cohesive democracy. 
I think all of that is up for grabs now. Things really could, uh, we, we could see a big increase in our ability to work together in a sense of we-ness, um, similar to the sort, not, it won't be as much as with World War II, but um, there is at least some hope, depending on how things play out, especially next year after the election, there's some hope that our democracy could get a lot healthier. Thanks. Howard? I'm optimistic about the fact that we now have, may have a new normal where is, we're going to really appreciate the role that the, the government can play and dealing with some of the issues that our society is facing with, being inequality in particular. And I think the fact that people have come together and social distancing and actually doing the kinds of things we expect gives me some hope that there really will be some changes that will take place uh, in the future that we hadn't anticipated before um, this virus broke out. Steve? Thanks, Harry. I'm optimistic because of uh, it's kind of a renewed sense of community and volunteerism. Uh, we haven't seen anything like this since 9-11. Um, people are reaching in their pocket. People are offering to help out. People are donating at a very large level, whether it be masks, whether it be PPE, um, however they can help. And so hopefully, um, being how widespread this is, this is uh, something long-term and uh, sustainable. But I'm optimistic because of the sense of community. Great. Victor? Well, I'm optimistic in the sense that I think um, when I've looked at um, the the different cases in Asia, the Korea model um, really does offer a potential way to uh, reop start reopening businesses and the economy, even absent uh, a vaccine within the next 18 months or um, or um, uh, significant um, uh, universal sort of testing. So. You know, I think there's some positive things that we can learn from that. And, you know, whether it's a national decision, it probably won't be, uh, but it's a local decision, particularly in cities, big cities with large clusters. This can really help to augment um, in a positive way the social distancing that has worked thus far. Thanks, Victor. Alan? I think it was uh, Justice Brandeis that uh, called the state's laboratories for democracy. And even though uh, many people have said that uh, the appropriate response for the U.S. would have been at the federal level, where it's been quite weak, uh, I, and the states have had to uh, take the lead, I think the, the uh, fact that we've had an opportunity to see different states uh, following different approaches with uh, varying degrees of success has been something that's been uh, very good for uh, for democracy in the United States. And uh, I, I have a very positive uh, view of that. Betsy? So I uh, think that when this is all over, it's going to give us the impetus we need to reform our social insurance system. We have the social insurance system today that we developed coming out of uh, the Great uh, Depression and, uh, you know, it, it's one that's really based on being tied to our employer um, and including having health care that's really tied to our employer. We've been really wrestling with how to make these changes, how to deal with the ballooning costs of Social Security that you talked with Alan about. And I, it's felt like a problem we didn't know how to take on. And I think that having to make the dramatic changes we've made in just a, a few days to unemployment insurance will uh, give us the, the push we need to de design a social insurance system that will work better in the 21st century. Wow. Okay. Carrie? I want to say I am full of um, optimism as well. I think Helen Keller said it best. Although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of the overcoming of it. And so I've been really excited to see the overcoming with people in the medical community, scientific community coming together. We've had 12 thousand papers in the peer-reviewed literature come out in the last four weeks 
So you see everyone is trying to push the needle forward, stopping what they're doing, and trying to find cures as well as better diagnostics. So I am optimistic that we're going to find that. But in addition, I do think there's going to be new norms, at least in the healthcare sector, at least from from the small um, microcosm I see, that telemedicine, telecommuting, it's now, I believe, going to become, to some extent, the new norm. Uh, People are seeing that air pollution has decreased. We've had a lot less asthma exacerbations, less heart attacks because of not having to have so much traffic. We've had less car accidents. So if there are some optimistic things, I know in the wake of this horrible disease and crisis, there have been some upsides as well in the medical care um, aspect. Brendan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think playing on that, I, I do think the way we're all work, able to work from home, never in my industry, creating product, designing product, would I have thought the team could function so well uh, remotely. And, and so I do think that will have positive impacts uh, down the road. And, and then more broadly for the retail industry, as I mentioned, uh, it's going to accelerate the change that uh, likely was happening anyway. And, and we are such a cyclical business in retail where we think about the Saturday before Easter the same way every year. And, and so now all of that has gotten disrupted. And I think it will allow us to hit a reset button that, that will be painful in the short term and will change people's roles and responsibilities. But ultimately, I think for my industry, we'll make it more sustainable and ready to uh, uh, build on in the future. Thank you, Brendan. And thanks to all my speakers. Thank you, all listeners as well. That ends uh, the call. Uh, I'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Thanks again.